Welcome to a dialogue on accountability in the digital age. A dialogue with representatives of a global, multi-stakeholder community. I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Guillermi Canela. Uh, Guillermi, welcome to the program. A pleasure. Yeah. Uh, allow me to introduce uh, Guillermi. Uh, you are the chief of the section of freedom of expression and safety of journalists at UNESCO. Uh, currently working in Paris, but has a long background in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, before that, uh, he was a senior member of the working group at the Ministry of Justice in Brazil to advise regulation on TV programs the rating system. And you have a master's degree in political science from the University of uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Again, uh, Gemi, welcome to the program. Uh, we're going to talk about transparency in the digital age uh, and the role of journalists. And one of the things in preparing this interview, uh, I noticed you talk about, um, you gave a, a, a lecture where you stated uh, a quote, you once presented a lecture called, I have no time to hate. Uh, which, which, is, which is a poem from Emily Dixon. Oh, I, I'm not claiming yeah. the, the authorship of that wonderful verse. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it, it was a great um, uh, discussion on, uh, okay, how to take down illegal hate speech. Although when you talk about illegal hate speech, uh, can you then also assume that there's something like legal hate speech? Well, I think that what there is, what is authorized by international standards is a speech that maybe disgusts us, maybe is even somehow aggressive, mm -hmm. um, but it's not uh, asking for more violence. Um, we need to understand a very hard thing about freedom of expression. That is, freedom of expression is not the speech we are in favor of, the speech we like, the speech uh, with which we concur. Uh, the, the difficult thing about freedom of expression is to protect that speech that, that, speech that we don't like. Uh, that speech that we, as I said, we maybe even may cause us nauseous. Uh, there are only two things that are not allowed by international freedom of expression standards. One is propaganda for war, uh, and the other is hate speech that is actually demanding a concrete violence. Although those two elements, the only two narrow things that can restrict freedom of expression, they are establishing the Article 20 of the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. So when we speak about illegal hate speech, it's just to make clear that there is a concrete, uh, a concrete indicator in the international standards about that. Yeah, the way you actually describe it, you make it uh, actually quite simple when it's legal or illegal. Uh, unfortunately, in reality, it doesn't always work like that. There's that gray area where some feel it's legal and some feel it's illegal. It's true. That's why, for instance, uh, in the universal system of human rights, we have not only one, we have two tests that a judge, uh, she or he, needs to take into consideration when they are taking a decision regarding a particular speech, if that should be prohibited or not. 
One is called the three-part test, and the other is a six-part test that were developed under an umbrella framework called the Rabat Plan of Action. Yeah. So this is to show how complex it is to take decisions uh, regarding hate speech. It uh, should be prohibited or not, depending on those two tests, the three-part test and the Rabat test. Okay, now we're not talking in the context of accountability in a digital age. And I'd like to uh, link this hate speech and assessing if something is legal or legal uh, to uh, technology helping organizations filter out that information. Um, what's your opinion? We, we see more and more uh, use of uh, AI technologies to filter out information. Uh, is that a good development or a bad development? Or what are the concerns by uh, with doing that? So if you if you allow me a small preamble before getting into the, 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 the core of your question. Yeah. When we are looking into the digital ecosystem, that is a very complex thing with obviously internet companies, social media networks, uh, but also um, television, radio, or newspapers, and many other pieces of this big puzzle. I mean, people speaking in stadiums or uh, the, the other players that are relevant here, journalists, media owners, regulators, civil society organizations, uh, uh, judges, prosecutors, and so on and so forth. When we are looking at all of this, um, we are we are we are trying to see one we are trying to reach one big goal how we can make this uh, big and complex digital ecosystem more democratic more respectful of human rights of all people mm -hmm. and an a digital ecosystem that is also pushing for an inclusive and um, and sustainable development so those are the, the goals for the United Nations system. So when we looked at, uh, there, unfortunately, there are not simple solutions for complex problems. So let me try to summarize how we see it, and then I will get to your question. Thank you. The first thing we need to do is to qualify the demand for quality content. Either it is information or, or, or entertainment or art or whatever it is. And for that, we need to empower the citizens, all citizens, including children and teenagers, but not only. And for doing that, to empower these citizens to have a, uh, to have a critical and autonomous relationship with this content and all these pieces of the puzzle, uh, we need to do something regarding their knowledge and skills related to this interaction. It's what UNESCO calls media and information literacy. But it doesn't matter the name. We can, you can call it education for a new century or whatever it is. But the important thing is that citizens uh, should be prepared to have this autonomous relationship with this, uh, with this ecosystem. But only this is not enough. We need to qualify the demand, but we also need to qualify the supply. The supply for information, for news, for entertainment, etc. And qualifying the supply is normally what we call to fight issues like hate speech with more freedom of expression and not less. So for instance, 
when we are supporting journalists to have a better coverage of those issues, or when we are supporting fact checkers to actually try to fact check disinformation or misinformation, or even things that could be called hate speech or xenophobic or misogynistic speech or so on and so forth. What we are doing is empowering the freedom of expression workers, wherever they are, to have, uh, to have the capacity to really supply this complex ecosystem with more quality, accurate, reliable information and so on and so forth. So demand supply. However, only those two things is not enough because it is unfair to say that these citizens here, these journalists there, can be in the same weight as the transmission chain. So we are talking now about trillion dollar companies that organize with good things, but also with problems, this digital ecosystem environment. And this transmission chain is fundamental to guarantee those three things I, I, I mentioned in the beginning, democracy, human rights, and inclusive, inclusive and sustainable development. So uh, to deal with these companies, uh, we, at the end, the question is, is there any regulation uh, that we should put in place <coughs> to achieve these goals? And at the same time, we are protecting the international human rights law. So the question is, what is the policy here? However, to build evidence-based policy, and sorry for the redundancy, we need evidence. And this is the first step that we are missing here. We don't have enough evidence to actually suggest uh, policies, either they are more regulation or they are more activities of capacity building or whatever it is, simply because these companies that have the data, have the evidence, they are not transparent enough. So it's, imp it's impossible to develop uh, an accurate uh, and effective accountability system if we don't have the data in the first place on how these ac accountability mechanisms should be put in, put in place to, to, to dialogue with these different players in the system, obviously including the, the, the internet companies. So in a nutshell, uh, to, to counter a phenomenon like hate speech, uh, obviously uh, artificial intelligence filters could help, and uh, although the human component here, it's, it's also fundamental and so on and so forth. But we are not in a condition to say, if what is in place is enough or how could be reshaped to be more effective because we simply don't know. Very simple things like, what is the process of human rights risk assessments that these companies are doing or not doing to take decisions regarding content moderation to, to avoid hate speech? Okay. Or are we talking about 50 million posts or we are talking about 50 billion posts? This changes a lot, the, the discussion in terms of policy. Are we talking about hate speech about a particular population or is spread against everyone? So this is the kind of things that if we are serious in terms of suggesting policy, we need to have these data. So transparency here is absolutely paramount to start the conversation. Uh, I, I very much get your point. Um, so you don't know 
what the data is, uh, so you don't have the evidence, but you do know you need the data. Um, why can't you just demand or why can't or, uh, uh, governments demand that that data is shared uh, with the objective to check uh, what's happening? Or are those companies you talk about, these organizations, too big? I think there are different, I mean, first to demand the data, uh, the first step is what exactly is the transparency we are talking about? So uh, transparency is one of those things that political scientists call the omnibus concept. Everyone wants to be on board. Yep. Uh, so everyone, is, everyone wants to be transparent. Everyone wants to be democratic, but the devil lives on the details. What exactly is transparency? What exactly is democracy? What we are talking about? So the first thing is that uh, it's, from a UNESCO perspective, we, we tried to, to launch a global conversation about those issues. So for instance, we launched 26 principles of transparency uh, regarding those companies. Uh, and there are some difficulties here because it's true that some things are protected by commercial secrets and, and this should be respected because this yeah. is important in the future for innovation. Uh, it's also true that we can't compare in terms of the demand uh, medium and small size companies uh, that are also relevant to the ecosystem with the big, uh, the big, big companies because then we could be uh, introducing barriers for entry in, 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 in then again jeopardizing innovation that could be important to this system. So it's, it's easy to say we want transparency, but we need to go into the details, what we are talking about when we are, when we are mentioning transparency. So of course we can ask more data regarding specific areas of hate speech, but this, to, 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 to remain in this example, but this, even if it was possible to do like that, it would be a very short-term solution. So we need to think. We need to think in a more structured way. So, what are the processes that need to be transparent, regardless if the topic is hate speech or disinformation or conspiracy theories or whatever it is regarding climate change, etc. So, because these these topics, they are actually interacting with every aspect of our lives. Uh, and, and, and there are specific situations, for instance, in the case of elections, uh, which is a core element for democracies, uh, one of the things obviously we need, to, we need to address is disinformation and misinformation. But another important topic, for instance, is electoral advertisement. So we need to know if these companies are accepting advertisement from foreign agents, uh, foreign agents, I mean foreign players, either they are governments or companies, etc. How much advertisement they are. So these things are important transparency questions to address a fair and free election, for instance. No? So just to summarize that, it's true what you said. Why, why governments or, or, or the international system like UNESCO just don't ask them to, to release the information. Yeah. The, the honest question is that it's not that simple because it's not only about releasing granular data on this or that topic. Is about transparency regarding the entire machinery uh, and what is possible and what is not possible because it's also protected by the overall exceptions of, of a fair access to information regime. Yeah. And if I may just add one thing to illustrate how those things are complex, but at the end of the day, they also have good news. 
if you speak about transparency of governance, um, the first freedom of information law in this planet was approved in 1766, 1766 in Sweden. The second one was approved 200 years later, 200 years later in 1966 in the United States. So can you imagine the, 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 the members, the, 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 the countries took 200 years to come from the first freedom of information law to the second. And in 1990, which in historical terms is nothing, is yesterday, we had only 12 countries with freedom of information laws. This is just to illustrate how difficult it is to be transparent for governments, for instance. Luckily, now, uh, 30 years later, we have 130 plus countries with freedom of information laws. But this is because the international system are not only saying you need to have the law, you need to be transparent. We are also pushing for the details. What is a good freedom of information law? What needs to be there? What is concretely speaking a very uh, a, a freedom of information regime in line with international human rights standards? So in a, in a, in a comparison, this is the same thing we are trying to do with the conference. What is a transparency regime that makes sense and it's at the same time in line with international human rights standards? Uh, uh, Guillermo, um, I very much appreciate you sharing the complexity of the issue because uh, um, I think people watching this um, not always appreciate how complex it is. It's very easy to say, oh, we need to be transparent, but uh, and that's just one step of the pro uh, the process as well, because uh, this helps to understand why things are taking so long to fix this. Uh, and and even if uh, if we assume we get the information it is transparent, then uh, and, and we then conclude in a situation, oh, uh, somebody we should hold somebody accountable. Uh, then there's the issue: how do we hold people accountable specifically across in cross border situations? Well, indeed, this is um, this is maybe the one trillion dollar question, particularly for for complex and, and transboundary systems, as it is the case of the internet. Yeah. Um, there is not a, a an answer for this question, but maybe there are some clues we need to follow. Okay. The first clue is that if we look into the very first article in the international human rights system, the current version, uh, that was approved by the mothers and fathers uh, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, these people, they were very visionary. If you look at the Article 19 about freedom of expression, it starts saying everyone, every individual, it's not about people that have, that have more than 18 years old, uh, so includes children. It's not talking about citizens or nationals for a country. It's talking about everyone. Everyone has the right to freedom of expression. And with internet, uh, this is really important because maybe before uh, people thought about freedom of expression as being really something used by journalists or, or lawyers or specific professions. But with internet, we saw that everyone is exercising that right in a good way to, to, to further promote their other human rights, but also with problems that should be addressed. But if you keep looking into the right, they define freedom of expression with three verbs. 
seek, receive, and impart information, knowledge, art, culture. So you see that freedom of expression is not defined only the right to speak. It's also the right to seek information. It's also the right to receive information. So that's why transparency, access to information, is also protected as a human right under the same umbrella of the Article 19 of the Universal Declaration. And they go further. In 1948, when the declaration uh, was approved, the only two media that exist was radio and newspapers. But if you keep reading the article, they say these rights should be exercised through any media. They didn't name it radio or newspapers. And without and regardless frontiers. So if you, even with all the technological advancement that we have, these articles are still very much valid. So first thing is that it's difficult to achieve what you just asked it, the, what, what, how to do this accountability in, 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 in this very complex jurisdictional problem. But the first thing is, let's go back to the basics. I mean, the principles, they are there. And we need, uh, and we can't forget that. We can't try to say that we need to invent new principles. No, they are there. Yeah. Obviously, they need to, they, they have new challenges to be applied and so on and so forth, but the principles are there. This is the first thing. The second thing is that we need to we need as as as, as human societies to to look into these problems um, and 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 not and not have a, a catastrophist approach to them because we need to acknowledge all the good um, advancements that, for instance, the internet brought to the protection and promotion of human rights in general and freedom of expression in particular. So. We, we have huge opportunities here, but obviously we have risks and we have some concrete harms. So the challenge here is how we foster the opportunities, so how we make this system even more powerful uh, to advance freedom of expression and other human rights. But at the same time, we mitigate the risks and we need to be very careful with the idea that we can eliminate the risks. This is not possible and maybe it's not even desirable. Uh, even in the case of children, uh, more and more researchers are saying that what we should look for is to make children more resilient to the risks instead of uh, thinking that we can put them in a bubble and, and completely isolate them from, from, from these environments. No? So how we mitigate risks and how we make people more resilient to the risks. But of course, if we have harm, uh, we have child pornography, for instance, or we have hate speech that leads to hatred, or, or so on and so forth. Then we need to prosecute these harms. So, just to conclude, yeah. of course, looking to this kind of logic uh, and having the jurisdictional problem that you mentioned, uh, so two things. In our view, the, the transparency, again, can help a lot because when you, when you, uh, I mean, a, a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court used to say that the sunlight is the best disinfectant. So when we have sunlight into a problem, part of the problem is eliminated just with the fact that you have transparency. But the other thing is, and that I finished here with uh, trying to respond to your, your question, is that maybe we will need to look more into the, into the context of the international human rights courts. Those courts, uh, for instance, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights or the European Court of Human Rights or the African Court of Human Rights, they will need to look more and more into those cases 
and they have a broader jurisdiction than the national one. But indeed, it's a difficult problem, and we need to keep looking into it. Uh, a great overview of where we stand uh, with um, trying to resolve the issue of um, uh, freedom of speech uh, and to keep it safe. Um, I do want to come back to a question um, about you, you, well, well, first of all, you explained quite wisely uh, and clearly. Um, it, one of the clues for a solution is to go back to the context, uh, ignore the clutter of all the types of systems that are out there. I mean, they make they uh, make things bigger, but the the concept still the same. Uh, I just wanted to, your take on uh, how can digital technology support this quest for transparency? Do you see a role? of digital technology also as an instrument to help resolve these issues you just talked about? Oh, sure. I mean, I think that if you look again to the example of uh, governmental transparency, what we call rights to information or freedom of information, uh, we have two basic systems of transparency. Yeah. We have what we call passive transparency, when a citizen asks for a complete yeah. information, but we have active transparency, that when the government, without being asked, is putting there more and more information. So all these different movements of open data, open educational resources, open science, all those different things, they are making governments more, governments more and more transparent and actually improving accountability. So digital systems can do the same uh, for the companies. Uh, the only thing we need to be careful here is, is, is not to take the, the wrong approach that the technology can replace um, the, the legal frameworks um, or the ethical frameworks. So we need to have the rules of the game. If they are even, either they are self-regulation, they are regulation or they are co-regulation, the rules of the game should be there uh, because otherwise, um, Otherwise, if not even the digital technology will, will help here because they can, they can uh, as I said before, they can be useful in the short term, but then we don't look how to make a structural change that is very much needed. But indeed, I mean, technology will be part of the solution, including artificial intelligence. Great. So, Guillermo, you, uh, you give us a great overview of what we can do on the supply side. You also touched upon what we can do on the demand side, education. Brings me to one of the uh, final couple of questions for you. Um, do you think, that, is there enough awareness, I would say, in the non-digital community, um, people outside the IT community, uh, of what the issues are at the moment? And do we, are we spending enough time educating society to understand how to use the technology at the moment? Well, I think that there is uh, more and more knowledge about, um, uh, I think about different epistemic communities mm -hmm. on these problems. So, I mean, you have the digital community, uh, although I think they, although they know, I, although they know the, the nitty gritties of the technology, I think they need to also uh, open their eyes and minds to the human rights aspects of this thing. 
And then you have the human rights community, freedom of expression NGOs or, or children's NGOs or whatever it is. And they, they realize the problems, but maybe they also need to make an effort to understand more the nitty gritties of the technology. So I don't think it's a problem of this or that. It's, it's, it's really the, 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 the overall acknowledgement that we all need to be more humble and say, well, we need to, to dialogue more and I need to learn what I don't know from the other side and, and vice versa. But this is for the specific epistemic communities uh, uh, what Pierre Bourdieu would say, um, expert communities in different areas. But of the overall population, um, society at large, I think that the good news is that now um, most of the people acknowledge that we have a problem. Uh, and I think this is the first, this is the first step. Is it's, it? uh, it's an aware, awareness indeed, uh, which helps to understand. It's putting things in the light, as you mentioned. Exactly. So. People say, well, fake news is a problem, or disinformation, or hate speech, or conspiracy theories, or, or whatever it is, no? Uh, but obviously, uh, we, we are not yet there uh, in terms, for instance, of changing lifelong learning education, starting from, from very early years in school and throughout the life cycle, to actually introduce these elements not as a not as a separate uh, discipline or, or, or in, in a particular uh, like mathematics or, 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 or English or biology or whatever. It's a cross-cutting issue throughout the education system. Uh, my impression is that governments realize this is needed, uh, but we are still in early stages of having national education policies that indeed include these things in a way uh, that people are, as I said, in some point of this interview, empowered to deal with these kind of situations, which is more and more needed, no? Uh, and it's more and more complex. But let's, let's remind that we had these challenges before. Uh, before mathematics was a, it was a code that was being taught to cross the border, this was very difficult. So now people are more and more have these in the, in the basic education and, and so on and so forth. So this is necessarily part of our lives and we will need to, we will need to learn this code the same way we learn other codes like mathematics, yeah. like uh, in our native languages or a foreign language, all those different things are codes and are codes relevant for our daily lives and we will need to learn this code as we learn the others. Gamma, I'm so pleased we've had this conversation, especially as you are part of UNESCO. And for me, for us, uh, UNESCO is the birthplace of the Institute for Accountability in the Digital Age. Uh, because one of the things you've shed light on is that we need to create awareness, have this discussion. And then just by having the discussion, um, we are optimistic that we will come with answers and solutions, how we bridge that gap uh, and can still um, have a sense of accountability in the digital age. So uh, I want to thank you for your thoughts. Uh, I realize it's, it's complex, it's hard work, but just having this conversation and sharing that with the world is what's going to get us there. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure and I fully agree with you. I think that we need to we not only need to increase uh, the, the, or, or multiply the spaces for these conversations, 
but we also need to make very clear that uh, maybe we not we are not going to agree, and this is not the purpose of democracies. Uh, the, the the Argentinian poet uh, Victorio Campo uh, once said, "Well, look, the basic thing is that we just need to agree on how to disagree." Uh, so if we uh, if we manage to do that is already a huge jump, uh, and uh, and unfortunately this is the biggest problem we are facing right now everywhere. Uh, the the levels of polarization they are so so high for different reasons uh, that people uh, have forgotten that they need to learn to disagree, and it's fair it's fair to disagree uh, as long as it is on. Under the overall human rights framework, uh, and and I think the only way of doing that is really doing what you're doing. I mean, accountability and transparency at the end of the day is about these: is how we make the public sphere of debates a healthy environment, uh, not to reach consensus necessarily, but is to put the dissensus on the table with no violence. So this is the purpose. I mean, we can dissent; it's it's healthy to dissent. What's not healthy is to do that with violence. Well, let's agree that this conversation and sharing this conversation with the world will help us to get there and realize that's uh, a desirable ambition to have. So again, thank you so much for your time, Guillermo. Thank you.